continuing chapter 9 in our series and uh, I've really enjoyed personally just going through Hebrews over and over again. I, I reckon I've listened to this chapter at least 200 times. I wasn't always just focused, I was doing some other things, so don't think too highly of me. But you know, when the Word washes over you constantly, it begins to have an effect on you. Have you found that? Sometimes we don't need to be told something once, we need to be told a hundred times before it really begins to sink in. And so if I had to have a title today for the message, I would say it would be this, that we may serve the living God. Can we say that together? That we may serve the living God. That we may serve the living God. We have a short period of time to surf across this chapter And meditating through it, this particular verse really stood out to me. Verse 9, this is an illustration pointing to the present time, speaking about the tabernacle. For the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests of old offered are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For me, this verse holds a key contrast between what was And now what is with Jesus? Now we just have to pause this story for a minute because in the Hebraic mind, it was a very clear understanding of the garden, the garden of Eden. And Genesis chapter 3 captures the story of that moment where Adam and Eve disobey God. And what is it that they experience? They experience nakedness. They experience shame. Their conscience is overburdened, it's too weighty to carry and they hide from God and I just have this image in my heart that as they hid from Father God, the Father's heart broke. Hebrews is a love story, Hebrews is a passionate plea to a people who didn't fully grasp what Jesus had done because of what they were facing but I think it really addresses this issue that we find in Genesis 3. The new covenant is, you would say, the fulfillment of the Adamic covenant, where Father God himself says this to the serpent, he, as in Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. After these words were spoken by God in Genesis 3, we then find this temporary covering being given to Adam and Eve, animal skins, Fur coats, I reckon God would have paid top dollar at Harrods for that. Fur coats. In other words, animals had to die so that this temporary covering could come into place. It was a a picture of, of what Moses would introduce at Sinai. This temporary, this this in a moment covering that didn't really resolve the conscience of the people. And so the ongoing repetition of sacrifices was to point people to the fact that they need God. But as the writer of Hebrews says, the conscience was still heavy. And so chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10, they continue to drive this intense contrast between whatever it is that you've believed before and Jesus. 
If you're a Jewish Hebrew person, whatever you believe before, contrasting that to Christ. The writer of Hebrews is passionately debating, engaging in rhetoric, trying to construct an argument by which the Jewish readers can understand and grapple with. So today we're going to look at seven buts in this chapter. That's one for my kids. Um, But we're going to also specifically look at verse 4. If there's any controversy in this chapter, it's in verse 4. We're going to return to the issue of guilt and shame and the freedom that we have now to make a difference. And we're going to look at the fact that we're no longer constrained with self. There's no need for me to try and strive and do things right so that I'm safe, so that I'm taken care of, so that I have eternal life. We're going to look at what it means to to serve the Lord, to be part of His mission. Not works of salvation, but works of faith. My belief today is that for some, there will be a breakthrough for you in that area of guilt and shame. That, That issue that just comes back and robs you of joy. The weight that you carry, the burden that you carry... This, this word today is, is going to challenge that. And for others, maybe, maybe you become too comfortable just sitting on the chair where you are now. This, this word is also going to encourage you. What do you do with this Jesus? Jesus is greater. So the first 10 verses really contrast what we would call the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the writer uses the tabernacle as the contrast to Jesus and the new covenant from the cross. But first, let's look at maybe this verse 4 aspect. The tabernacle itself was essentially two rooms and there was all sorts of items placed in those rooms. In particular, we find the altar of incense is placed in the holy place. The tabernacle was the place on earth where people would build their lives around the presence of God. And I don't believe that has changed for us today. We ought to build our life around the presence of God, amen? But for the people in the desert, this place was like city central. And once a year, the high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. Once a year. Once a year, the curtain was drawn back so that the fullness of the presence of God was felt so that sin might be covered. Sin might be covered. There was no end. It seemed as though you couldn't cover enough sin. It was a problem. There was a constant barbecue. I don't mind that idea, to be honest. But even after a while, I reckon, the smell of constant sacrifices. I think I would honestly just die for veggies. I'd be looking forward to just a plate of salad. The blood and the smell and the noise and the activity, it was never-ending. So the writer of Hebrews knows that his listeners really understand tabernacle. And so he uses this idea of tabernacle. But for many, verse 4 is a bit of a problem. I want you to just remember here that the altar of incense is in the holy place. Verse 4, part of verse 3 says, "...was the second room called the most holy place... In that room, there was a gold incense altar, and some translations have censer, and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Does anyone see a problem? Some people really, really see a problem. 
Some people use this verse to discredit the book of Hebrews. Some people use this verse to discredit the entire Bible. Some people read it and go, I don't even care. I had no idea that was even there, Ben, before you brought it up. Thanks a lot for the burden. But I don't think I could go through chapter, this chapter without at least just touching on it. At least just touching on it. I'll give you my take on this. So the, the issue is, is that the writer of Hebrews places this altar of incense in this room when clearly the tabernacle had it elsewhere. Let me give you my take. First of all, the writer of Hebrews in this chapter and in the entire letter is, is a personal conversation. It's not written as a historical document that's trying to ensure that the dates and times are captured like you would in a court case. I, I want you to picture two people having a, a deep and meaningful conversation in a cafe together and there's a fire burning and, and the conversation is intense. About 20 years ago, Beck and I were involved in a church plant before our kids were born and we were involved with another friend and we had a great time for two years but the church plant ended really not well. The church plant went on but Beck and I, my friend who were involved with the leadership team, we, we just ended up pretty shattered. You know what? We learned that church wasn't, wasn't what we thought it was going to be. We, we learned that that leaders can let, can let you down badly. And so for us, we're on the eldership team and the leadership team, we thought, oh, this whole church thing is just a joke. I've never thought that before. Anyway, my dear friend, it just hit him so hard, he was angry at God. Even known someone who's angry at God? I want you to imagine that, that, that there's a moment when you're talking with someone and, and you're deeply... You're deeply connected to them and you're trying to get across to them that don't be angry at God. People mess it up, but, but Jesus is still the most important thing. I, I, I did just that. I went to a cafe with this friend and I sat with him for two hours. I think I might have even cried. And we just went backwards and forwards about how the people in church really let us down. But Jesus doesn't. It's very hard to unpack sometimes. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And so it was many years that this dear friend and family were away from the Lord. They're perfectly fine now. He's the chairperson of an eldership in a Baptist church. He's going great. It's all, it's all a great story of restoration and healing. But the picture of the story in Hebrews here is an intense, loving conversation between two people. What's also important here is that the word in particular that is used this word in that room or in the ark or the NIV says contained in that room or contained in the ark, this particular Greek word is actually a, a more a functional word than a positional word. It's more a word of function than it is position. Perhaps an analogy could be this. If you come to our house, the dining room is where you'll find food and conversation. That's where you'll find food. That's where you'll find conversation. That's where you'll find warmth and engagement. But the truth is, if you were to come to our house right now, you will not find food in the dining room. You will find it in the fridge and the pantry and my secret stash in the bottom drawer of near my bed. They're the places where you'll find food. So when I say come to my dining room, there's food and there's fellowship there, it's functional. Does that make sense? Many scholars believe that that is exactly what's happening here. 
that, that the point of the altar of incense was to symbolize the prayers of people. And where should that be? In the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And so once a year, the high priest would carry a censer and would carry this, this incense and would take it into the Holy of Holies on that one day. So that's how I manage this controversy. That's how I sit and go, ah, it's all good. That this is a functional, functional expression of what is happening here. And, and of course, if, if that's not enough for me, even the writer of Hebrews himself says, but we don't have time to explain these things right now. We don't have time to go into detail. We, we, we cannot spend ages working through it bit by bit. You know this stuff. Can you hear a bit of the theme of what's happening? Are people's hearts okay? Have I raised something that never was an issue? Well, I'm glad I solved it within five minutes also. The seven buts, that verse five was the first but, but we cannot explain these things. There's seven of them. In the NIV, there's uh, seven. NLT, there's five. ESV, there's nine. In the entire book of Hebrews, there's between 47 and 56. This but is being used often to continue the contrast between something else and Jesus. The book of Hebrews gives us so many ologies. It gives us Christology, ecclesiology. It gives us uh, eschatology and soteriology. The theologians love the book of Hebrews. But at the end of the day, whether you're interested in theologies or not, this book challenges you, do you choose Jesus in every moment of your life? Do you choose that He is greater in every circumstance? And so if we just look at these buts quickly, in verse 5, it says, "...above the ark with a cherubim of glory." overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail. Now, the angel that was above the Ark of the Covenant there, that same word for angel is used in Genesis chapter 3 when there was an angel protecting the Garden of Eden uh, from the Adam and Eve, preventing them from getting back into the Garden. This guardian angel, same guardian angel that was stopping them from returning to that intense presence of the God, the same angels are over the Ark where the very presence of God was. But we can't discuss these things right now. The second but's in verse 7. It's only the high priest that can enter this room. And, and, he, and he had to have blood for himself and for the people. Just once a year. Just once a year. How, how can you live your life like that? Just being able to sort things out once a year. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Nick Shahadi going to Sheila once a year saying, I'm sorry. Here's the list of things. It'd be a very short list because he's awesome. Here's a list of things. And, and then you have your discussion, game over, go on for another year. Can, can you imagine a relationship like that? The next one, verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. Jesus is in heaven, the greater tabernacle. The tabernacle on earth that the Hebrews understood was an earthly copy. Jesus himself is in the very presence of God, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly place of God's presence. Jesus himself is there. Which high priest would you rather be a part of? Which, which system would you rather connect in with? Verse 12, he did not enter by means of blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. 
thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus was raised from the dead. He eternally lives. And so by that eternal blood, we also now have access to eternal life. High priest would die. Sacrifice would have to be repeated every year, over and over again. The contrast just doesn't stand up. And it goes on in verse 23, the heavenly things versus earthly copies. Verse 26, otherwise Christ would have to suffer many times. No, he's appeared once and once for all. Once and once for all at the culmination of, of the ages to do away with sin. Now, For most people, when we read this, it just goes over our head because I'm pretty sure I sinned this morning and I'm pretty sure I sinned yesterday. Um, Jeff, would you agree? Jeff agrees? I'm pretty sure. How can sin be done away with, yet I still struggle with it? I think this is something we wrestle with as people who follow Christ. Verse 28, and and this one's a heavy hitter verse. If you need to underline, underline one, this is a good one to underline. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and has and will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting. Sin has been dealt with. For the writer of Hebrews, sin is a non-issue. Sin is done. Sin is finished. The consequences of sin is gone. It's removed. It's ended. The contrast is huge. Maybe in our culture, we we struggle with the the, the Jewish kind of desire to go back to the sacrifices and the ways that they're in. Maybe maybe we face other things like self-preservation, consumerism, self-reliance, self-gratification. Maybe those things are outside the church. Maybe what about us? When was the last time we exercised faith? When was the last time we exercised mercy? When was the last time we exercised a decrease of ourselves so that Jesus can increase within us? When was the last time we exercised service? When was the last time we did something? When I read the Bible, I don't read so much people sitting in Bible colleges studying. I read people of faith and action. That's the Bible I read. Maybe it's my translation, but there's predominantly stories of people The Word of God lodged in their hearts and they did something. They acted and they moved. So now to this verse 9 that captured my heart. For the gifts and the sacrifices that the priest of old offered were not able to cleanse the the consciences of people. I wonder if in some ways people still wear animal skins today. I wonder if in our minds and in our hearts we still feel like we wear temporary animal skins. I wonder if there are people here who are still weighed down with matters of conscience. Events of the past, events of yesterday, matters of conscience where you just know you're not up to the mark and it hangs around your neck like a weight that pulls you under the water. And it just constrains and restricts you until Jesus. You see, in verse 14, Jesus changes everything. For the writer of Hebrews, this was a known thing. These were Christian Hebrew people, but they weren't living in the fullness of what Jesus had done. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So what do you do with the guilt that you have? What do you do with the the regrets? What do you do with the the issues of the past that scream at you over and over again that you haven't got it right and you you, you don't have what it takes and that you struggle and and things haven't worked out like you planned and you you second-guess yourself and you process these things over and over. What do you do with that in the face of this passage? What do you do with your conscience? I can only say to let it go. And I'm not going to sing that song. I can only say to forgive, to move on, to get over it, to work through it, to paint it out, to journal it out, to put it in your diary and write it out, to speak to somebody and share it out, to allow them to encourage you, to allow them to to build you up so that this verse becomes full reality in your lives. You see, I am convinced more than ever that as Christians, we carry this weight in our conscience. When Jesus came to cleanse it fully, completely. Fully and completely. You think of the issues of our day. You think of depression and stress and anxiety, hurts, guilt, lack of self-esteem, lack of confidence, a sense of powerlessness. No, your conscience is clean. Serve God. What is the moment that you're stressed in? Serve God. What is the moment you feel anxious about? Serve God. What is the moment where you think you can't do it and you don't have strength? In that moment, serve God. When that thing replays in your head, serve God. That's the only way forward here. That's the only way forward that I can see in this verse because Christ has cleansed our conscience. Christ has removed the guilt and the weight. And so sometimes, I don't know about you, but we just have to get moving. We just have to get moving. We just have to move. We just have to serve God. Jesus brought us a new covenant because he fulfilled every detail of every covenant and law placed upon humanity. He fulfilled. He met every requirement so that his sacrifice, when he stands before us and offers life, we can say, thank you, Jesus. We can say, thank you, Lord. Then serve God. Thank you, Jesus. Then serve God. This covenant is... is mentioned 19 times in the NIV across Hebrews. The covenant is is, is an agreement, it's a set of promises. It's more than just a simple contract. The word covenant comes from a word which means to cut. Now, I, I don't know why, living in 2018, why there's so much blood involved in the ancient Near East. Maybe they didn't have the internet, I don't know. Maybe they didn't have Netflix. I I don't know. It is so far different from our culture today. It's hard to understand how to make a very important agreement with another requires you to kill things and to spill blood. It's so foreign from us. Yet this is the reality. 
of what was done in those days when a covenant was cut, when a deal was made. It was a deep ritual, it was a ceremony. Sometimes two people would pass in between the dead animals that were cut in half, almost to remind them that this is so important, let this happen to us if we don't keep our word. Let this happen to us if we don't follow through with the promise that we've made. I mean, it's so foreign to us. Does anyone else struggle with this? I mean, imagine I came home to my kids and said, right, your room's going to be tidy. And if you don't keep your promise, you're going to be in trouble. In fact, we're going to walk through these cut dogs right now. Yet something of the seriousness of the covenant is really important for us to grasp. Because I think sometimes we can approach Jesus too casually. We can approach Him too loosely. We forget that God is almighty. We forget that God is holy. We, we, we forget that Christ, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand, who intercedes for us. We forget the awe that we ought to have of Christ. I think the visual cuttings must have done something to the mind and to the psyche. I'm not suggesting we have things cut, but I am suggesting that communion is critical for us, that we remember the blood of Christ, we remember that His body was broken. Every week we take it in and we remind ourselves that that cross of Calvary was cruel, it was brutal, it cost Jesus everything. We need to remember that. We need to remember, we need to wrestle with that again and again and again. This covenant, first mentioned in chapter 7, 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the better, has become the guarantee of a better covenant, a new covenant, a superior covenant, a greater covenant, an eternal covenant. Perhaps the closest we can understand covenant today is imagine if uh, Murray decided to go guarantor for me. I was buying a Ferrari and Murray said, I'll go guarantor for you. He put his everything on the line for me. Who here would be saying, Murray, that's a good choice to make? You know, Jesus is my guarantor. What do I do with that guarantee? Am I buying Ferraris? Or am I serving God? Because Jesus is my guarantor. He's put everything on the line for me. He's, he's put everything on the line as guarantor. We read in chapter 8, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This ongoing movement and contrast in chapter 9, our chapter for today. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The first covenant. Jesus fulfilled the law. He overcame death. He's resurrected at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He is in the Holy of Holies even now. He himself is like the incense that was offered in the Holy of Holies. He himself are, is praying and interceding for us eternally. Jesus himself is the showbread. He's the candlestick. He's everything 
but better, but more than what the tabernacle was. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this guilt conscience? What do we do? What do we do with the guilt that we feel that constrains us and, and, and weighs us down? What, what, what do we do? I think today the reality is for us again to go, my conscience has been cleansed. Something has happened to me and my mind and my heart needs to keep catching up to that. But you know, most people say, but Ben, I'm, I need to do something. I'm an action person. Hebrews provides for that. What does it say? Serve God. Serve God. In everything you do, serve God. Whether Harry's on his placement at Temple College, in that moment when he's teaching, he's not just teaching, but he's serving God. He's serving God. When Jenny is at the pharmacy dispensing all sorts of happy drugs, and I'm sure it's much more serious than that, Jenny, I apologise. But she's just not dispensing pharmacies, medicinal band-aids. She's She's serving God. In everything that you do, you are serving God. There is no reason, therefore, for anxiousness. There's no reason, therefore, for anxiety and stress because, because if, if you've said, Lord, if you uh, said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then the presence of God is with you. And in his presence, there is fullness of what stress and anxiety can be in that moment. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? Who can be against you? Oh, Ben, this, this, this is hard. It, it is hard. I remember talking to Jim, what would have been maybe six months ago, nine months ago. He spoke about a philosophy he has as part of his PE program, and, and he can correct it next week if, I've, if I make it up and say it wrong. But basically, his fundamental idea is that he tries to create an environment where there's love and acceptance of the person, so that on the sporting field they can do their best within that. In other words, they're, they're so accepted and, and loved and, and encouraged that everything is made, the environment, the space that they're in is ready for them to just simply do their best, to just to grow and learn and be the best that they can be. I hope I got that right, Jim. You'll fix that up next week. I think Jesus has done that for us. I think he's given us the best environment to thrive. He's given us the best environment to serve Him, to honour Him, to, to, to follow Him. He, he's, he's created the best environment for us. There's a man called Sir Nicholas Winton. I'm going to close with a video clip. He was of Jewish-German descent and he migrated to England. His family converted to Christianity, but around about the time he was 30 years of age, he was a banker, he was heading to Switzerland to go on a skiing trip. Who here would love to ski in Switzerland? Patricia and uh, Christian might have actually done that. Bonjour. Um, he had a phone call from a friend, and a friend was working in Czechoslovakia, and they needed help because... At that time, the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia was taking hold and, and, of course, extermination was beginning. He said, can you come and help me? I think we can do something. So he gave up his holiday and he went to Czechoslovakia. 
And to cut the story a little bit short, he single-handedly set up a process to rescue 600 children plus. He single-handedly put in place ways for these kids to be saved, to find transport to Britain. And it was no easy task. In fact, the story got lost until his wife found an old book in the attic about all the people who'd been saved and the processes that had been followed. We, we stand up today because of Jesus. So the question is, are we serving God? The, the, the question is that our conscience is clear. We don't have to live with guilt and with the weight of all these pressures that the world gives. We have the presence of God because of the new covenant of Christ. Sin has been dealt with. We don't have to live in the consequences of that. It does not mean we take it lightly. It means we wrestle with flesh. But it's not just a battle of the flesh. In everything, we must serve God. And this man did just that. So we're called to go into the world and make a difference every day. Called to go into the world and testify about Jesus. I think the truth is that unless we move forward by serving God, we will, by default, struggle with our conscience some way or another. And the church, as in us, will be bound by self, by conscience, because we have not moved forward in faith. We have not taken steps of faith. We'll be bound up in our own self, So because of Jesus, because of his new covenant, sin is gone. Guilt is gone. Would you watch this video clip with me? And then we'll close. There are some stories which 